Hello and welcome to Tape Ops Discussion, where we call our friends and music community notables to chat about their favorite records. Enjoy. Hey. Hey, how's How you it going? Doing? Excellent. I'm Excellent. Doing okay. All right. Are you uh, set up to record on your end? I am, yeah. Welcome to Discussion. I'm Jeff Stanfield, and today we have Tape Ops Larry Crane and Sadie Dupuy discussing Amy Mann's Lost in Space. Lost in Space, this is an Amy Mann record that I don't know that I'd ever really listened to. I know, I feel like this was kind of a, I just randomly shot out what I've been listening to over and over for the last six months, but uh, it's a great record. I'm happy I had an excuse to make you listen to it. That's good. What made you, uh, what what drew you to this record recently? I think um, right around the time the quarantine started, I just really wanted to hear things that comforted me that were things I liked when I was a teenager. And this is one of those records for sure. I think I saw her play Summer Stage on this album um, with like Ben Folds opening. So this is 2002. Um, and I've just been, I think I put it on for the first time in a million years, probably in March. And I'm just blown away by all of the sounds all of the amazing guitar playing. Um, and I've just come back to it pretty much once a month since then. This is a cool record, right? Because number one, the vocals are dry as a bone, like reverb-wise, mm. right? There's, did you notice that? Like it's just like the vocal I is just dry and up front. I tend to prefer vocals that way. And it's funny, and going back to this record – you start to when something's so formative for you, but you haven't come back to it for a long time. I'm like, did I just model my whole life and music career on Amy Mann? Um, I love how these vocals sound, and I love how many bajillion details are underneath them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, like the vocals right here. This is how I felt listening to it at the studio here. The vocals right in front of you in your face, and then other things are wrapped around and behind it. You yeah. Know, like drums and the guitars. And well, it's funny. I, I looked, I didn't know much about this record prior to suggesting to you that we talk about it. Um, and now I, I think I've read a lot of the press she did surrounding this album. And she started all these songs just in Pro Tools. She basically was like, I don't demo. I just start working and then we add everything around it. Um, so when you put it that way, the vocals are right up front and back there we've got, you know, 15-piece string section and some drums. I think that's really how the song started and developed. And what are there, are there working methods that you think you sort of picked up from that along the way too for your own work? I mean, that's kind of exactly how I work, but I wouldn't have known that was how I, I didn't know, you know, for someone who's a big Amy Mann fan, I don't know a ton about her process. Um, but I think there's certainly an influence there. 
Did you do any uh, research into the producers? We've got uh, Michael Deneen, Ryan Freeland, yeah. and Michael Lockwood. And Ryan I've interviewed before. Really nice guy. I, I know Mike Deneen, obviously, from Boston, Q Division right. Studio and Q Division Records, who put out, I think, my favorite local Boston band, Francine, whose um, front person actually has a co-write on this record. I didn't realize that until the other day. Um, so Mike Deneen, I, I know for, you know, Letters to Cleo, Fountains of Wayne, Morphine, all all kinds of great Boston and Boston-connected projects. Um, Michael Lockwood, I really just know from being Amy's guitarist, but he's sort of the primary, I think, alongside Amy, producer of this record. And if you look at the credits, he's playing a whole lot of stuff, yeah. as is she. Yeah, right. I mean, it's probably that kind of thing where you're in the studio and you're like, will this work? Will that work? You know, trying yeah. trying different instruments in different places. So again, when I say I didn't know much about how this got made, but there's some kind of subtle unknown influence apparently they did this while she was on tour between tour dates over a year and a half which is exactly how i did my last record oh my god yeah. and um yeah she just if, if there was studio time she'd do a couple songs at a time and then um eventually there was enough for a record so i think that's probably why they were able to access there's so many if you look at the credits it's like a really funny amount of guitars and synths and random people filling in for one song Jason Faulkner plays bass on one song. Right. Um, so I, it's, very, I guess, an on-the-road kind of record. Man, I like just stopping off. That's what you were doing. We are talking about with uh, mm -hmm. um, Haunted Painting, right? You were dropping off, and after a show, you'd go and work for a bit somewhere in different places. Yep. I'd be like, festivals flying us somewhere. Let me just stay a few days. And seemingly, they did something kind of similar for this. Right, right. I mean, what was the, the previous studio record to that? Was uh wasn't that kind of the breakthrough record for her as well? So the first record that she self-released was Bachelor Number no. 2, and it was one that she had done for, I think, Interscope, and had to buy back her tapes because they were insisting she do some kind of radio-friendly nonsense. Yeah. Um, so she bought back her tapes and self-released it, and it sold much better than anything she'd done from till Tuesday till you know, the year 2000. Um, and this is the first record that she wrote and recorded knowing she'd be self-releasing it on Super Ego, which was the the label she did um, Bachelor Number 2 with. Right. Man, that's kind of an interesting... I didn't realize that she had to buy her record back before this. Yeah. Apparently it had just been in limbo with a major label and they were not... Uh, happy with how it was going, but turns out her fans were pretty happy with it. So one thing, another that I loved about how she released this record in like going through these interviews with her from 2002, she basically was like, I put it up on the website for people to stream, but not download. I don't think it's ethical to charge people $15 for an album they haven't heard. So <laughs> she like uh, predicted... That's pretty interesting. Spotify in a more artist-friendly way. Right. Well, I mean, if you look at if you look at the music business stuff, you know, think about how, you know, where's this going to what radio station is going to be playing? I mean, they she does get some radio play, but not it's not as pervasive as 
as the music deserves, you know? Yeah. So how are people going to get to hear it? And that's a great... She basically was like, you get what you pay for with radio, and I don't have the budget that Interscope did, so it's just online for you to hear and then buy if you like. I would have never guessed that she was sort of like writing recording as it was going, you know? Yeah, like I that. wouldn't have either. Yeah. Man, that is interesting. Did you find anything out about how that process worked as far as like, so you do a vocal and maybe a click track or a guitar or something, and then you kind of come back and have to add in drums and things? I guess so. I didn't find too much about the recording beyond that. Um, and knowing that, you know, obviously Michael Lockwood went everywhere with her on it. Um, I imagine she probably didn't keep the, you know scratch vocals she did at home and just builds on top of them and replaces it because these vocals sound so clear and good as you noted mm -hmm. yeah right, right. At the start something that i there's a really funny chris gow review of this album this album didn't get wasn't very well reviewed it seems like which is strange to me because i think it's great and i think a lot of the critique of it is kind of why i like it she basically said that because she'd been so used to major labels saying like up-tempo song here to break things up that she really wanted to group things by tone and theme and even bpm so it is kind of yeah you know it'd be it's a I, I put this record on to go on a really long run to when i revisited it it's good for that because it kind of keeps a pace but um chris gow didn't like that about it and he basically said something to the extent of uh that she's put all of her money into studio musicians and it takes talent to make that more boring than a solo acoustic record, <laughs> which is not how I feel about it, but I, I do love a good um, takedown of a record. I think is fantastic. I mean, if someone really has been listening and wants to, to invest in, in tearing it apart and go for it. I mean, when you know the feeling when we all, we finish working on an album, there's always uncertainty. You know, whether yeah. whether it's deserves an audience or whether people are going to respond to it or if could it have been better? Could we work harder? What would be some final thoughts for you? Like if you were trying to convince somebody to listen to this and and what, you know, what they would gain from it and what you've gained from it. The big thing for me on this, I just love the guitar sounds and that's really um I think a lot of that is Michael Lockwood. One of the things I did read about the recording of it is he has apparently a pretty tremendous collection of um, old guitar pedals. So a lot of the cool spacey sound effects that are sort of woven throughout the record are him just leaving his pedals on and seeing what noises they spat out. Um, there's this really cool atmospheric stuff that's going on. almost can't even talk about like she's such a good lyricist that I don't even notice what they are because I can just count on them to be good I don't have to think about it um so for me the the real thing to delve into here there's just so many cool sounds she's playing like 20 instruments Michael Lockwood's playing 20 instruments there's the song ends on one of my very favorite songs um it's not when she's drumming on it there's like a 
15 piece string section. Uh, it's just a really gorgeous record that doesn't, it doesn't feel like it ever needs to be flashy. She just knows she's good at this thing that she does and it, it feels comfortable in a way. Um, so I, that that's sort of my reason for loving this. I just think the sounds are, are great. Um, and apparently there's also a 40-page booklet by Seth, the graphic novelist. Right, that, um, who did the cover art. yeah. So that I don't actually have it. I gotta I gotta track that down. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, it's really got it. Right? It's got a real certain tone. I got actually a copy of it here. You um, do? Uh, just I'm mean, just a picture of the of the front cover on the Wikipedia page, and and it's like I just keep looking at it and thinking like, that's cool. There's something evocative about that, and how the album feels when you listen to it. Yeah, it's got a real atmosphere. It apparently they'd initially thought to do it as a Christmas thing. Um, and it it came out in an in the end of August, but I feel like there is kind of a cold weather atmosphere to it. Yeah, I mean the record sounds kind of like a little claustrophobic in a certain way, you know. <laughs> Which and I it, love, of course. Yeah. <laughs> now we're figuring out your brain, um, but oh, there's yeah, there's something kind of cool. I love that sort of you know that dry vocal and sitting right up front. I used to get people that would bring in some of her records and be like. Mix it, you know, after we have tracked everything, be like, oh, make it sound like this. And I'm like, we didn't track with that in mind. Like, you know, to have the vocal dry front and center, you kind of have to build it around. Like we've talked about, they built the tracks around that vocal, you know, mm. as opposed to having a rock band blasting away behind it, which is going to be difficult, you know. Yeah, there's so many little parts taking up space that. You really mm -hmm. can affect the vocals in a different way. Yeah, there's something really cool about that. And it kind of gives you like an interesting uh, way to approach it. Like you said earlier, um, you weren't even maybe aware that you were sort of mimicking some some of what you took out of this years ago, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can't stand having any noticeable amount of reverb on a lead vocal on a recording. Like, I just won't. I think I told you that it worked with... Um, Paul Caldery on a, a mixing something and he was like complaining about me to me like I don't know what to do with these vocals you won't let me put any anything on them um but I I'm certain I must have I think not to get us all into a whole gender conversation at the very end of this podcast but I think um for male vocalists it's a, a lot more common to, to have them dry in this way and I think women kind of get stuck with a ton of reverb on the lead vocals um let's make it sound and, like Celine Dion <laughs> yeah uh she's very much not that kind of singer and no. but I think I really love vocals that are are dry in this way and and that loving this record growing up could very well be a reason why <laughs> there you are excellent well thank you so much yeah this was so fun thanks for uh listening to this with me Thanks for listening. Discussion is created by Tape Op, the creative music recording magazine. Free subscriptions are available at tapeop.com along with our regular podcast and online content.